0: So uh, Vijay Prashad is Professor of International Studies at Trinity College. Uh, he is, uh, among his books are one called The Poorer Nations, A Possible History of the Global South and the Arab Spring, Libyan Winter. He writes regularly for all kinds of publications. I think it's, uh, it would be great for all of you to get on his list, which is possible history, is that? Possible history at gmail Uh, and we are really so honored that you gave us your time and that we get to have a space for looking at vj's inner workings of his brain which is really amazing to look at some of the broader issues let's give a hand to vj thanks a lot media it's a real honor to be here i'm a complete fan of code pink Uh, It's an amazing organization. I'm a complete fan of Maria Benjamin because uh, at least once a week she's getting arrested somewhere or chasing John Kerry down the hallway of some building saying, Why are you doing this? (laughs) The most fearless and insane American, at least in, in this generation. It's always great to have standard bearers like that. I was very glad that you began your remarks, cautioning us about Islamophobia and about, you know, demonization and things like that. After all, this is the United States of America, and if I had the ability to dub Ted Cruz's speeches into Arabic, the American population would be terrified. They would think he was ISIS. (laughs) Ted Cruz scares me more than anybody else, more even perhaps than King Salman of Saudi Arabia. So le- let's let's have a little bit of humility when we look at other countries and their grotesque problems. I, uh, I have now begun to carry with me, and I shall regularly, under the next presidency, and if this presidency, of course, continues for perpetuity, I am going to carry with me forever uh, my new handbook, which is the quotations from Chairman Trump. And... <laughs> I recommend you buy this because if you don't have the quotations from Chairman Trump, I think you get a 15-year jail term under the Trump administration. So this, this is the place we live in, and it is from this place that we talk about other places. You know, we're talking about Saudi Arabia, but let's just breathe a little bit and recognize that in the past two decades, at least five Arab countries have been destroyed. Begins with Iraq, and then you have, let's say, I don't know if this is in order of anything, but then you have Libya, then you have Syria, a country with half a million people dead. Then you have Yemen, the most silent war prosecuted by Saudi Arabia and its allies, Emiratis and the United States and the Europeans, since the 26th of March of last year. And one of the really positive things about this summit is I hope very much that the people who very bravely hold vigils against Israel's punctual bombardment of Gaza will begin to hold vigils against Saudi Arabia's almost year-long war against Yemen. It's very important, I think, for the American peace movement to join, or at least join in with the cries of Yemenis in the cities of Tez and Sana'a and others who watch those planes fly over their heads, watch their children terrified once again as buildings around them and their own buildings get destroyed. So the American peace movement has to pick up the Yemen war front and center. It's not just about Israel's wars in the Middle East. There are other Israels as well. And Saudi Arabia in many ways is another Israel i'm going to talk about perhaps two things the first thing is a little broad and that's this idea i have of the foreign policy of the 1% you know i like many of you have been quite excited by the phenomena of bernie sanders not because not because of you know bernie sanders record or what he's saying or you know because the sanders movement is not quite like the jackson movement which picked up from you know extant social movements grassroots organization and build the rainbow from there. This is slightly different. This is people being mobilized to come out of frustration and anger and with a desire to come and talk about income inequality and such like. But you see, one of the premises of income inequality in the United States is the assumption that the United States is actually a country with a bounded territory and that the American economy somehow exists within the states of the United States. But the United States is not a country. The United States is not restricted to its boundaries. The United States has a great imperial presence. The United States not only has an imperial presence as a kind of anachronism. You know, we know that some of the bases, many of the bases were adopted from the British. You know, the Bahrainis know that it is clear in Diego Garcia that the people of Chagos lost their land to the British who built a base there. And then the British delivered that base to the Americans. But these bases aren't merely anachronisms of British imperialism. These bases are essential to the accumulation strategies of the 1%, not only in the United States, but in the group of seven countries. So in other words, the US economy is not an economy with a territory. It's an economy which has a global scale. Much more than that, the accumulation strategies of the U.S. 1% require extra economic pressure against countries outside the territory of the United States. This had a sort of primitive position in the 1950s, 60s, and 70s. After all, why did the United States decide to do a coup against Jacob Arbenz in Guatemala if not at the behest of the United Fruit Company. In other words, big American capital required Jacob Arbenz to be removed so that so-called land reforms of Arbenz could be stopped and United Fruit could continue with extra economic force to maintain its accumulation of capital against the Guatemalan people. Why did the Americans send Kermit Roosevelt, that very young scion of the Roosevelt family, to Tehran to overthrow the government of Mohammed Mossadegh in 1953, if not at the behest of the oil companies, who didn't want the Iranians to nationalize their oil. Because after all, how dare the Guatemalans control their own land? And how dare the Iranians claim a better rent for the oil that they sell under their feet? It is not for them to control the way land is used It is not for them to control how the oil should be priced. That is, after all, the responsibility, the heavy and grave responsibility of the 1%, because they are the people who should order the way the planet functions. In a primitive way, the foreign policy of the 1% operated in the 50s, 60s, and 70s. But this foreign policy of the 1% had to deepen in the 1980s, When the fact of production transformed, it was at this time that you saw factories so-called disarticulate, break up. No longer the big steel factory in Gary, Indiana. Now, smaller production units spread across the planet, producing bits and pieces of commodities. That's what we call disarticulated production. If you're going to have... Part of a commodity made in Malaysia, another part made in Hong Kong, you need low transport costs. If you're going to have low transport costs, you have to maintain low prices of energy or at least stable prices of energy. And you have to break one of the most important international unions, which was the unions of people who worked in ports, in airplanes, etc., these unions had to be crushed because transport prices had to be kept at a low point. Transaction costs had to be lowered. And that is why they forced through new global level trade agreements through, for instance, the General Agreement of Trade and Tariffs in the Uruguay Round in the 1980s that finally manifested itself in the World Trade Organization of 1994. And now we see out of fear of China, really, that the United States is pushing this other new big trade agreement called the TPP, the Trans-Pacific Partnership, which really is about China, fear of China. These major trade agreements were attempts to reduce transaction costs so that the 1% would be able to take advantage of a global scale of production to have goods, you know, uh, labor costs, run down through race to the bottom competition among countries trying to compete with each other to draw manufacturing, bits and pieces of manufacturing from each other. So labor costs were brought down, environmental regulations were brought down. This was the accumulation strategy on the global scale of the 1%. Now the advantage of this structure was that it very much deteriorated union power because countries were fighting, vying against each other to draw capital, to create parts of a commodity in each country, unions began to find it very hard uh, to maintain their existence because they were told, if you f- go on strike, well, the capital is just going to move to the next country. You know, this is the kind of uh, Haiti-Dominican Republic game with the textile industry. You go on strike here, well, we'll move across the border. You go on strike here, we'll move back. Secondly, nationalization as a strategy was annulled. It became impossible for firms to be nationalized by a country because you only had a piece of the commodity being produced inside your geographical boundaries. How can you nationalize tire-making when you don't make a car? You know, the car manufacturers just say, well, you you keep manufacturing tires in your national tire manufacturing factory. We'll move somewhere else to buy tires. We'll source our tires elsewhere. This was the advantage to capital of disarticulated production on the global scale. The disadvantage, of course, was that countries elsewhere would now have the ability to see how bits of a, Commodity were produced and they could replicate it, which is why in the World Trade Organization, protection of intellectual property rights becomes so central. They changed the law on intellectual property rights. Previously, countries could innovate and produce goods based on a new process to get to the product. That was known as uh, process-based patenting. Only the process could be patented, not the final product. Under the GATT round in Uruguay in the 1980s, which became uh, the, the, uh, um, the WTO, it was the product that is now patented, so that companies like Nike don't own the factory anywhere. They merely subcontract everything, and then they protect their rents by having these strict patents uh, held by themselves. So if anybody breaks a patent rule, you need to use extra economic force to maintain your patent. Finally, finance decrees that the rate of return on investment in financial goods is far higher than the rate of investment in manufacturing. Finance globalizes. This globalized space of accumulation for the 1% needs to be protected. You need to use extra economic force to maintain your authority. That is why, for instance, the threat of China has to be annulled by threatening China, you better crack down on piracy. If you don't crack down on piracy, we're going to go after you. You better crack down uh, on building, you know, these islands in the shipping lanes, because if you build islands in the shipping lanes, the transaction costs will go up. The ships will have to go around to new shipping lanes. You'll increase the cost of transportation of goods, etc. Extra economic force, war, what we call war, extra economic force, is the essence of the foreign policy of the 1%. It is not an excrescence of the system that we have today. It is precisely the system we have today. War is normal. It is peace that is abnormal. You are the freaks of the world. You are the ones that believe in peace. You are out of step with the times. Because the times, in other words, the way the masters of the universe have organized accumulation in the planet, the way of the world is to use extra economic force on a planetary scale to protect not only their investment, but their, right, uh, their rate of return. That is what I mean by foreign policy of the 1 percent. The second point I want to make, and I'll tie this together at the end, is I want to come right to the question of the great war between Iran and Saudi Arabia, because I think it's unavoidable. ...that in the United States we should talk about this great war. This great war is not religious in its essence. If it were religious in its essence, then the Saudi regime would have had a problem with the Shah of Iran. But they didn't. They were friendly with the Shah of Iran. The Shah of Iran is also the head of a Shiite government. They had no problem with the Shah of Iran. The problem began with the Iranian revolution of 1978, which became the Islamic Republic of 1979. Please... Always in your heads, remember, there's a distinction. The Iranian people rose up in 1978, 1979. It is not an Islamic revolution. It was an Iranian revolution. Power was seized by the Islamists in 1979. Don't give the revolution to the Islamic regime. I think it's important that we remember that. The Iranian people fought to get rid of the ghastly Shah of Iran, sent him into his long-deserved exile in Rome, but power was seized from under the feet of the people. When that regime came to power in Tehran, it was a grave ideological threat to the regime in Saudi Arabia. Because in the previous decades, the Saudis could say, our threats are secular, and secularism is against the Arabs. You know, the secularism of Nasser, the secularism of the communists, the secularism of the Baat of Michel Aflaq of Qasim, of others, this secularism is anti-Arab because it is not Muslim. The interesting thing with the Iranians was they created an Islamic Republic. In other words, they said we are Muslims and we are against monarchies. It was an ideological challenge to the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia, which is why the Saudis bankrolled Saddam Hussein to begin that murderous war that went from 1980 to 1988 fully supported by Western powers, giving, providing the Iraqis with chemical weapons, so they use mustard gas against the Iranians. And interestingly, Ayatollah Khomeini in the middle of all that, and you know, I'm not a fan of Ayatollah Khomeini, but in the middle of all this, Ayatollah Khomeini puts a fatwa out there against the use of weapons of mass destruction. You know, when people in America discuss the Iranians and their murderous drive to have nuclear weapons, it might be a good idea to mention that when the Iranians were attacked with mustard gas, they did not retaliate with mustard gas. They decided to fight back (laughs) with conventional means. Now, to contain Iran, on the one side, you had the war from Iraq. On the other side, you had the Mujahideen in Afghanistan. I mean, you know, you cannot understand this war that begins in Afghanistan without understanding the whole regional context. You might not know that in 1979, when the Iranian people rose up, in Pakistan there was an uprising. In fact, the American school in Islamabad was seized by militants who wanted the Americans to leave Pakistan. There was a regional fear that there would be an out-of-control uprising against US imperialism. And it's at that time that Mr. Brzezinski uh, you know, Carter always gets a free pass. Jimmy Carter. He always gets a free pass. You know. He gets a free pass. I don't know why Jimmy Carter gets a free pass. Sorry. Secretary of State, or what was it, National Security Advisor, who cares, Brzezinski, <laughs> engineers the strategy of sending in arms and uh, logistical support to some of the most repellent characters in Afghanistan. Students of Buruddin Rabani, one of the most horrible teachers in Kabul University, brought his students, people like Gulbuddin Hekmatyar, famous for throwing acid in the face of unveiled women. Ahmed Shah Massoud, who the French Parliament honored with the Legion d'honor, you know, a scoundrel in Kabul University engineering faculty, virulently anti women. These were the people who became the great Mujahideen. Interesting, they were not called the Fedayeen, which was the term of art for the Palestinians. They were called the Mujahideen because they were to fight a religious war. This was the context of when the Fedayeen were actually in great popular understanding around the world, and yet they did not use that term in Afghanistan. They called them the Mujahideen to fight against um, you know, the left regime, the PDPA government in Kabul. So the two ways to contain Iran, on the one side was this war from Iraq, on the other side the Afghanistan situation. George W. Bush, the painter, George W. Bush. H.W. or W? George W. Bush, the painter. That's why I said the painter. He paints pictures of himself in a bathtub. He paints dogs. You haven't seen his paintings. You're missing a great deal. In fact, what I really liked about... I I miss George W. Bush's sense of humor. Because what I liked about the day he came to endorse his brother, he said, my paintings are expensive because of my signature. I thought that was good. He's a funny guy. The other reason I admire George W. Bush is he's the only American president who could duck a shoe. I don't think any other American president would have been agile enough in fact, he ducked the second shoe, remember, because Eddie went down and took the second shoe through it. It's an incredible moment. I, I, I don't think any world leader, I think in that sense, for, there's something to be said for not drinking alcohol. So, okay. George W. Bush prosecuted two wars in the space of two years, 2001-2003. He knocked out the government of the Taliban in Afghanistan and delivered it partly because they joined the cabinet to the Iranian backed people from Herat, Ismail Khan, for instance. On the other side, they knocked out the Ba'ath government in Kabul, in, in Baghdad, and delivered it to the Dawah party, exiled closely linked to Iran. In other words, the Americans fought the war and the victory was Iran's. It's bizarre. You know, who is in the U.S. State Department? Who is in the National Security Council? Who strategically... I mean, I think game theory is the stupidest possible mode of analysis. And yet I have some sympathy for game theory because didn't they game theory this scenario? Didn't they say, if we knock out the Taliban, if we knock out what's going to... Well, what happened was the fear of God literally went through Riyadh and to Israel, and among the Christian Wahhabis, like Ted Cruz and others. <laughs> so the attempt now was to constrain Iran, put it back in its box. What did they do? Syria Accountability Act, most important one, 2005, which was an attack against basically Iranian resupplying Hezbollah through Damascus airport. How to take down the Syrian regime because that government is too close to Iran. Second attempt to engage Iran was green light for Israel to flatten at least half of Lebanon, the war of 2006. Neither did the Syria Accountability Act work, nor did The Lebanese bombardment, because Hezbollah, which had just defeated uh, Israel in 2000, was able to stand up to the Israeli onslaught of 2006. And I should say, the Lebanese military did its best. At least it tried. (laughs) Yes, don't laugh when I say that. Lebanese military now no longer being financed by Saudi Arabia, which I'm going to come back to. They were never an army. You're insulting them. (laughs) The third attempt to engage Iran was the sanctions that began in 2006. Syria Accountability Act, War on Lebanon, and the third, sanctions. These were the three attempts to put Iran back to its borders. Now, when the Arab Spring broke out, if you met Iranian diplomats in the region, they would say things like, this is not an Arab Spring, it's an Islamic Spring, It began in 1979, and now it's going... I mean, I just want to say that everybody was saying that in 2011. Erdogan went to Cairo, and Erdogan said, this is an Ottoman spring. He didn't actually use that word, but he said basically it's, you know, the Brotherhood will win everywhere, and they'll follow the AKP party's policies. Um, Everybody wanted to claim it, except, of course, the Americans and the Saudis and their allies. Uh, Saudi Arabia sends its forces across the causeway to crush the uprising at Pearl Monument, and in fact, uh, erases the Pearl Monument, which had to be bulldozed, because God forbid you have a memory of the people protesting in Bahrain. Uh, Saudi Arabia, uh, UAE, uh, that is the Emiratis, uh, the Kuwaitis, etc. decided to push hard in the Arab League for the West, to push the West to go and bomb Libya. And Security Council Resolution 1973 One of the most shameful days of the U.N. Security Council was passed in March in order to bomb Libya. And Amr Musa, right after the bombing, sort of came running out into the streets of Cairo. He was the head of the Arab League saying, what are you doing? You're not supposed to bomb Tripoli. You're supposed to protect civilians. Ban Ki-moon went quickly, held his hand, and then they went back in front of the press. And he said, no, no, it's okay what the West is doing. We agree. All right. Mohammed Morsi did something horrible. Mohammed Morsi allowed an Iranian warship to go through the Suez Canal for the first time since 1979. Mohammed Morsi also went to Tehran. First time an Egyptian head of government went to Tehran. Uh, This was an abomination. Tehran is the great obsession of these powers, Iran or Tehran. Now, a dose of realism crept into uh, the powers when they realized that their strategy to basically engage Iran is not working. And one of the great achievements of John Kerry, I think, was this nuclear deal, because it demonstrated a sense of realism that U.S. unipolarity is no longer prevalent, that other powers have returned to the stage and that a miscalculation took place in Syria because the the Syria confrontation has brought Russia and Iran closer together. It has also brought China much closer to Russia and Iran. This is a serious global miscalculation by the West and by the Saudis. Uh, Russia and Iran have got closer together, partly because Russia is also feeling engaged through this uh, Ukraine, uh, you know, the uprising in Ukraine. Now, what I want to talk a little bit about is elements that are beginning to appear of what I hope the U.S. peace movement will take seriously, which is a call for a grand bargain between Iran and Saudi Arabia. Now, it sounds crazy to think of a grand bargain between Iran and Saudi Arabia, but I think the people of Syria, the people of Yemen, the people of all these countries deserve not to become the permanent proxy battlefields for these two major powers in the region. We need to think, we need to call for a grand bargain between Iran and Saudi Arabia, and there are elements of it already in place. One of them is the realization in Riyadh that it cannot prosecute its ambitions. It is feeling isolated. Let me give you a very quick example of that. Uh, When the Russian intervention happened, there was a sense of urgency in, uh, in the military of Riyadh because the royal family had wanted very much to up the ante in Syria. Later, Several months later, they would start saying, we're going to directly intervene militarily inside Syria. But very quickly, they had to back off from that. Why did they back off? The Turks also did it, but that's a separate story. Why did the Saudis back off? You might remember that the, uh, Mohammed bin Salman, the son of the current king, King Salman, had personally staked his legitimacy on the war against Yemen. In fact, on the first couple of days of the war against Yemen, he was seen all over Saudi television at the command center, looking at targeting information, etc. He's personally invested in that war. That war had gone abysmally from the very beginning. The Saudis requested the Pakistanis, a long-standing ally since the 1960s to deliver ground troops, as they had done in previous engagements. The most uh, you will remember, of course, Black September, when in Jordan the Palestinian resistance was uh, was attacked. Uh, the, many of the troops there, under command of Brigadier Ziaul ul Haq, later martial law administrator, uh, operated uh, alongside Jordanian troops to attack the Palestinians in 1970. But this time. The Pakistani Parliament, despite being utterly uh, reliant on money from Saudi Arabia, voted to refuse to send troops to the war in Yemen. And the argument that I heard from, you know, very sensible people in the um, sensible people in the Pakistani Parliament was that, unlike previous wars, this one is too dangerous. And the reason it's too dangerous is that Pakistan, unlike say Egypt, has a substantial Shia population, and they don't want to have sectarianism that is inflaming in the Gulf region returned to South Asia. I mean, you, you should know that in, uh, if you combine the Shia population in India and Pakistan, it's probably the same as the population in Iran. You know, it's a very, very, a tens of millions of people. And there, there's already a great deal of tension in the cities of Pakistan Uh, on sectarian lines because there are political parties of the right that have also domestically been inflaming sectarianism. But the government was, the legislator was very, very cautious about the danger of entering the Yemen war to put this out of control. So they refused to send troops, which is why in Yemen, the uh, Saudis have had to rely on Colombian mercenaries, on some Moroccans and other people from the Horn of Africa, but they're much smaller components of fighters. When they said we'll go into Syria, there simply wasn't a ground army under Saudi colors to fight in Syria. So there was a realization that they were in a position uh, not of strength. When the next Geneva meeting was to happen, the Saudis hastily called... Uh, much of the opposition, including their proxies to uh, Saudi Arabia, where they created a high negotiation committee. And the reason the high negotiation committee was wary of the Geneva meetings uh, you know, that happened recently was that they felt it was, they were being called to Geneva to surrender. And they did not want to surrender. The cessation of hostilities that was agreed upon is a demonstration that Saudi Arabia and, and other regional powers ha- are coming to terms with the fact That their ambitions are not being met this is a very important glimmer of hope in my opinion for a grand bargain with the iranians the other one is that last week in doha qatar saudi arabia under the invitation of the qatari government saudi arabia russia qatar and venezuela had an oil agreement on oil prices the agreement was to freeze production levels Immediately, the Iranians complained, saying, look, we're just coming out of sanctions. We can't afford to have production levels frozen. We need to be able to pump more. We have revenues to garner. But they then talked about it some more. And this summer, at the OPEC meeting, where Russia is not a member, they're going to take up the proposal from the Qatar meeting about stabilizing oil prices to their benefit. The fact that Saudi Arabia and Iran were in the room together to discuss oil prices i oh, sorry, Saudi Arabia and Russia were in a room together to discuss oil prices is to me another glimmer of hope. And I'm suggesting that we should look for these little glimmers and we should make something of them. We need to pressure uh, the powers that be that the way forward is not to merely, you know... Put, say, Saudi Arabia uh, against the wall or to put Iran against the wall or, or, you know, politics of that nature. We need to call for some kind of bargain among these powers in the region. Uh, Finally, I want to make just a couple of comments about how Saudi Arabia has demonstrated at the same time when it feels encaged, it lashes out. And the two, I mean, you might call it a sort of regional tantrum. The two regional tantrums that it's had, one is the continuing bombing of Yemen, despite the fact there's no evidence of any strategic gains. The second was against Lebanon, which you might have seen recently. The Saudis have refused to honor uh, several billions of dollars of security aid that they promised to the Lebanese government, $3 billion of security aid. Secondly, they've expelled, the Gulf countries have started to expel um, Lebanese citizens who they say are um, uh, sympathetic to Hezbollah. And they know this because of eavesdropping of telephones. You know, they've said this quite openly. The third thing they've done is they've declared Hezbollah a terrorist organization. This is very interesting that they're lashing out at Lebanon at this time. And I would just like to say that it's a dangerous form of lashing out because I'm guessing that the Iranians are going to come in and provide assistance to the Lebanese military, which needs it desperately in a country of 4 million that has perhaps two million Syrian refugees, whose exchequer is totally being broken, and who have the threat, not of ISIS, but of that other great organization, Jabhat al-Nusra, at its boundaries, an organization whose fighters have been getting free medical attention in Israel, an organization that occasionally the American strategic thinkers say is a moderate force. You know, it's funny when al-Qaeda becomes moderate, Or not that funny, not for the people who have to live on the other side of it. What is the foreign policy of the 99% if this is the foreign policy of the 1%? Uh, A student from Syria showed me a slide, Katie Al-Hayek showed me a slide which showed that the United States has provided the most money for Syrian rebels, $8 billion. She had the slide of all the amounts provided, $8 billion but has taken in the least number of Syrian refugees. Uh, Phyllis Bennis wrote a piece in the Nation magazine where she had a statistic that the United States has 28% of the world's wealth, which Phyllis, I thought, was a low number. I thought they ate more, but I guess 28%, huh? Okay, let's say it's 28%, but Phyllis then said that 28% of the needs of the UN for Syrian refugees should be provided by the United States. It should be an obligation. It should be by percentage of wealth. What is the foreign policy of the 99%? The foreign policy of the 99% is to fight for grand bargains. The foreign policy of the 99% is to pursue justice, not to pursue the accumulation strategies of those who make money Because war for them, again, is not irrational. It is normal. War for us is not normal. It does not benefit us. It does not benefit this country. It does not benefit countries that are at the other end of this country's bombs. It doesn't only benefit arms dealers, but it benefits the entire 1% class whose accumulation strategies are premised on the use of extra economic power to maintain their dominance and to maintain their delightful way of life. It is not my way of life. It is not, not your way of life. It is their way of life. We have to refuse it on our terms. Thanks a lot. Thank Let's do 10 minutes of question and answer, and then we... Yes, please. I think you have to press the button and hold it as you speak. Sorry. Thank you. Uh, I, I just want to thank you so much. There's so much to follow and learn from what you said. I'd like to ask how you would include the presence of drones in that issue, especially Gideon Starr. Was, you're calling the, and, and also, um, the you have to keep pressing it. Automating of, of the drones also. Did you read Media's book, Drone Warfare? I certainly did. Have you I given it to all your friends? I am almost. Yes, yes, it's Christmas every month. month. You know, I, I mean, look, if you look at it from a political economic perspective, automation is happening in every sphere of production. So automation of war is not a surprise. And indeed, this is a fantasy 100 years old. Remember 100 years ago, in 1911, actually, the first aerial bombardment took place in the world. And it was conducted brilliantly... Because it's the 100th anniversary by the Italians against the Libyans. The 100th year anniversary, they decided to go back and aerial bomb Libya. That's how they celebrate anniversaries. The foreign policy of the 1%. So I just want to say that when they did that kind of bombing in 1911, the futurists, you know, the futurist movement, they wrote glowingly about aerial bombardment. Why? Because it was incredible that this technology could be used to pacify the natives, the savages. The savages would just see bombs falling from the sky. They would be so scared they would not resist anymore. It was a clean war. The fiction of machines and clean wars is not down to drones alone. Gas warfare, when it was first used, was seen as a clean way to fight wars. You just throw mustard gas and kill the whole infantry. Imagine that. Nuclear bombs were seen as a quick war. Drop it on Hiroshima, the whole city is a, is a target. We talk always about, you know, people who bomb people and don't manage civilians. We forget that there has been never any accounting of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Never any accounting. Nobody went to jail for that. There was no Nuremberg Tribunal for the bombing of Dresden, for the bombing of Tokyo, firebombing. Yes, please. Quickly get to that mic because our time is running. Okay, here I am. Um, You mentioned the grand bargain, and I'd like you to comment, uh, if you can, on the recent trip by uh, Chinese President Xi Jinping. He went to uh, Riyadh, he went to Cairo, he went to Tehran, and he. invited the entire Middle East to his win-win policy of one belt, one road. For people who don't know, the new Silk Road, uh, which people call the World Land Bridge, there's a report on this, uh, worldlandbridge.org, and I think that this could be the basis of uh, the kind of uh, peace bargain which the 99% want. Can you comment on that? Yes, uh, you know, I've written a lot about the Silk Road and the Chinese not only uh, uh, building uh, across Asia, but also along the port cities of the Indian Ocean, you know, in Burma, in Pakistan, etc. Um, it's actually interesting to me what Xi Jinping did in two ways. One is, by the way, he went to uh, the Arab League and reaffirmed that East Jerusalem is the capital of Palestine, which was incredible. You know, I mean, uh, why was it incredible? For a Chinese... Premier, to take a direct political position openly and almost, uh, let me say, even though his manner wasn't thus, aggressively against the way the West has been tolerating this gobbling up of East Jerusalem by the Israeli state is quite something. And so, just, uh, let me just finish with this. Yeah, yeah please. Uh, because I, I know it's the established policy of the West, but there's something interesting about the way in which he has been making public statements. You know, for many years, the Chinese were fairly silent about events in the Middle East. Uh, Gone are the days of the Maoist Red Book being translated into Arabic and being distributed in the streets of Cairo and Baghdad and elsewhere. Not in the streets, but clandestinely. Gone are the days. Uh, Gone were the days when Chinese diplomats talked about anything else than making deals, including with the Israelis, you know, building uh, infrastructure and such like. But now there is uh, this entry of the Chinese, and I think it has to do a lot with what they feel is a betrayal of the Libya Security Council resolution, which I talked about earlier. The Chinese and Russians abstained on that resolution. And after that vote, after what was done with Security Council resolution 1973, both countries have quite candidly said They will never give the West again permission to do regime change. And I think, I feel strongly that this is a piece of why the Chinese are asserting themselves now diplomatically. You know, uh, they have uh, been very concerned for their own internal reasons about the growth of what they also see as terrorism, because Uyghur fighters have been coming to join ISIS, etc. But I don't think it's only that. I think they're projecting a different project uh, which is uh, different from the Western uh, project that had been there. This is the era of multipolarity. Sorry, there's one more there, and then I'll come to you. Yeah. Oh, you didn't have. Yeah, please. But you need a mic. Yeah. First, let me talk the positive. Yeah, yes. Very quick. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's delicious. <laughs> it tastes better than a thousand falafel sandwiches. Anyway. Uh, But I have to respond, as a Palestinian freedom fighter and revolutionary, the Chinese took a step back when they supported East Jerusalem as the the capital of Palestine. There's only one heart and capital to the state of Palestine, and it's called Jerusalem, Al-Quds, Al-Sharif, okay? They used to support that united... Uh, the democratic secular Israel. Palestine. They they took a step back from the Deng Deng Xiaoping's time uh, um, to, to the uh, to the present. There's been a whole transformation in in the, in the Chinese political paradigm. And in terms of their foreign policy, they shifted away from us. They recognized Israel and they stepped back from democratic secular Palestine supporting it. They betrayed us. And <laughs> I, they, I'm I, not going to so. argue with you. I agree with you. But let me just say that that basically what they affirmed was Oslo, because Oslo betrayed. The Palestinians, but the thing is that Oslo is. Let's we'll talk about this later because you and I can talk for hours on this. I feel
1: can you call uh, on Ray more. Ray yes, over here,
0: Ray McGovern? For anybody who doesn't know, we do have a CIA agent oh, in the crowd here, please, please. but he's on the yeah, sorry, he left a long time ago. He's on the, the, the bright side, please. Uh, PJ, I just had one question, and that is why. Uh, why do you think that American politicians become incontinent as soon as the word Saudi Arabia is pronounced? Uh, even a tough and tumble uh, Trump, if yes, people saw that at the last Republican debate, he talked clearly about the 28 pages. He talked clearly about Saudi involvement in 9-11, but he couldn't bring himself to say the word Saudi Arabia. Is it simply, is it pure and simple what Pope Francis called the blood-soaked arms trade? Does that explain it all? Ray McGowan, you know the answer better than I because you have spent more of your time listening to them in small rooms than they'll ever allow me into. So why are you asking me that question? But the fact is that there is more than the arms trade. And and this will be my last comment. It has a lot to do also with finance. You know, um, I don't have very much time to get into this, and some of it is a little complicated. But from the 1970s, the Saudis have been providing an immense service to G7 banking because all the oil profits that came are denominated in dollars and recycled into Western banks. You know, this is the so-called recycling surplus mechanism and Saudi Arabia plays a crucial fulcrum in the recycling mechanism for capitalism. So you have ordinary people, it's like a regressive tax. Ordinary people are hit at the pump where they pay high gas prices. The profits go to Saudi Arabia, in other words, the kingdom, Aramco, it's a private company, who then puts their holdings in Western and Japanese banks, which recycle that money Basically, to the 1%, who then speculate with it and do whatever they want with it. So, in fact, we are, it's a regressive tax against the public that consumes gasoline. So, Saudi Arabia plays a fulcrum role in doing this and doing it with the dollar. I just, the last thing quickly I'll say is we talked about China. China has been shifting from buying gas from Saudi Arabia, and now its two major gas suppliers are Russia and Angola. And the reason it's Russia and Angola is they denominate their oil sales in Renminbi. And Saudi Arabia cannot shift to Renminbi because it plays this fulcrum role for the world, that is, the Western financial system. There is a suicidal death pact between the West and Saudi Arabia. Thanks a lot. All right, let's give an amazing hand to Vijay.